Are you looking for a new job? Are you hiring but struggling to diversify that candidate pool? Then come check out our job board at revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. This week, AARP is looking for an associate art director in Washington, D.C. The Union of Concerned Scientists is looking for a multimedia producer in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And Gettysburg College in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania is looking for a director of communications and content strategy to join their agile communications and marketing team and take the college's digital and print communications to the next level. Companies, stop making excuses on your DNI efforts and post your job listing with us. For just $99, your listing will be on our job board for 30 days, and we'll spread the word for you through our podcast. Get started with us and expand your job search today. Revisionpath.com forward slash jobs. You're listening to the Revision Path Podcast, a weekly showcase of the world's black graphic designers, web designers, and web developers. Through in-depth interviews, you'll learn about their work, their goals, and what inspires them as creative individuals. Here's your host, Maurice Cherry. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Revision Path. My name is Maurice Cherry. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode. Before we get started, let's talk about our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Now for this week's interview. I'm talking with Dwight Battle, a senior UX designer at Amazon in Seattle, Washington. Let's start the show. All right, so tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Dwight Battle. I am a senior UX designer at Amazon, working on the Kindle team. Nice. And you just started at Amazon a few months ago, right? Yeah, I started at the end of August. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's, been, a, is, it's been a crazy time. I was going to ask, what's the experience been like so far? It's very much the phrase I use a lot the first couple of weeks there was drinking from the fire hose. And it's very true. I think people go in with a preconceived notion about what Amazon is and what working at Amazon is like. And it's, it's fairly accurate. You do hit the ground running and your head kind of has to be on a swivel. And it feels like I've been there six, seven weeks now, and it feels like six, seven months I've done too much stuff in that time. Wow. So you say you're on the Kindle team. Like As much as you can discuss, can you talk a little bit about just the kind of work you're doing? Yeah, I am on what we call the reader team. We manage the, as it sounds like, the reading experience across our various platforms and the e-reader. Specifically, I am the main designer for the core app experience team. So really the overall IA of the product and how things you know look, work, and feel on a very high level before you dive into a specific book or piece of media. Okay. What is a, just a typical day like? Meetings, things like that? 
I'm still so new there. I don't feel like I've really gotten to normal yet. There's something, you know, we have our usual stand-up meetings and, you know, sprint planning things and things like that. But I've been really focused on one particular feature at the moment. So I've been really heads down trying to solve what has turned out to be a fairly meaty challenge for most of this time. So I don't actually know what an average day at Amazon is like yet because it's been a very, I feel like it's been a very unique experience right now. Okay. And I know before Amazon, you were at HBO. That's kind of when we first we met in, uh, yeah. in 2016 at How Design Live here how? in Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. And you were a senior product designer at HBO. Can you talk about what your time was like there? My time at HBO was amazing. I was there for four, just under four years. We worked on the HBO Now and HBO Go streaming products here in the Seattle office. So that's everything across phone, tablet, TV, desktop. And I I touched a lot of different things. And what I really liked about that team, especially early, was that it was a fairly small team. So I got to do a lot of different things. And then as the design team started to grow, that focus became more and more narrow. But even then, it was narrow to a point where I could focus on things that I found interesting within the product and areas where I could affect change and make improvements to the product. Mm -hmm. And they gave me a lot of freedom to explore those things. So I got to do a lot of really cool things there. And it sounds like you were there at the time when sort of these big streaming services kind of got off the ground. Like, of course, people knew about Netflix, but I mean, of course, HBO has HBO Go, HBO Now, like you mentioned, Amazon has its own, you know, Prime Video and things like that. How was it learning how to sort of create those interfaces for TV? Because that's so different from the web. You know, it was when I made the pivot from print design into digital design, I made a I made a focus on or I, I focused on digital product experience and screens and TV screens in particular, because I felt like there was a really interesting opportunity and there wasn't a lot of people doing that at the time. And so coming into HBO and everything that that was, and yes, Netflix was around and Hulu was around and Prime Video was starting to to kick up and now everybody's got some sort of a TV mm-hmm. experience. There was a weird window of time where no one really had it figured out. And there was a lot of opportunities to say, hey, this is what navigating a screen with five buttons should look like and should feel. And there's so many interesting challenges there because you don't have things like hover states or you don't have long presses like you have on on a phone or something like that. And I think when Apple came out with their new swipe remote, that opened up a lot of possibilities mm-hmm. with how you interact with a, a piece of content. So it was a really fun and interesting time to be working in that space. I remember Android TV from around that time, and it was so clunky to mm-hmm. use, not just because I think of the overall, at least, you know, back during that time, Android was ugly, but aside from that, <laughs> Just the tools that you use to navigate, like it wasn't remote friendly. I remember the Android TV I had, it was a keyboard. It was like a mm-hmm. keyboard. And then on the right where there would be like a, a number pad, instead there's like a trackpad with a little like buttons. It was a very odd experience. And it's that was like, a while ago. You're yeah. And it's like, like you can't really like lounge Google on the TV, couch. Yeah. You can't mm-hmm. really lounge on the couch with a keyboard and, yeah. you know, try to do certain things because of just ergonomics and such. So it it has really come a long way. 
I think a lot of times people tried to translate, especially in those early days, tried to translate the keyboard mouse monitor experience to a yeah. living room experience. Yeah. And I've always been really fascinated with media servers like Plex and you know Xbox Media Center and things like that. So I've been looking at that for a long time. And, and that's all it was, was taking that mouse keyboard monitor interface and throwing it on a big screen TV. And yet that's not how people, that's not, not how most people interact with their, with a screen of that size. It's much more of a lean back experience and you're just kind of grazing the content, finding something to watch. And I would say it's also more of an audible experience. Like you want to be able to hear those like beeps as you go from menu to menu, from item to item where like on my main computer, I don't have speakers. I have headphones, but I may not always be wearing my headphones. Mm -hmm. But I can still navigate the web silently, just, you know, viewing. It can kind of be hard to do that with television, especially if you're, like, not really looking at it. You know, sometimes you'll be on the remote. You just sort of point it in the air, and you hope that it's in the right thing. (laughs) But at least you hear that little audible cue that's like, okay, it's moving. It's doing something. Yeah. I think that that feedback is is so critical. So when you hear the bloop, bloop, like, it's funny. When I'm watching TV with my wife, and we're commercial hits, she'll do the bloop, 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 which is the TiVo sound. And that's mm-hmm. the sound for me that, hey, you should fast forward through these commercials. And and that's <laughs> something we haven't had a TiVo for 10 years, but that has become such a, a known paradigm that audible indication that something is happening is so much more important on a TV space. Yeah, like the rise of, of audio branding as streaming services have grown has been really interesting. I think sort of TiVo and Netflix really come to mind with that. Like you, when you hear the Netflix, like, dun, dun, like, you mm-hmm. know, okay, this is Netflix. The show is starting. The episode is starting, whatever. Like that's the cue for you, the non-visual cue to say, mm-hmm. I need to pay attention. I don't know if any of the other services really have that. I don't recall if Amazon or Hulu have it. I think I don't, Showtime I, might have something. something Showtime's like, got their little chime, but it's, yeah. it's tied in with their programming, right? And yeah. And it's, it's funny, everyone knows the Netflix, but what I grew up with, and, and honestly, when I took the job at HBO, I posted this video, but back in the 80s, when it was the Saturday night movie premiere of the night, and they had that, that pan through the city, and then the HBO theme would play, and oh, the HBO yeah. logo would come spinning. Like, that was the sign that was like, I oh, yeah, that. it's about oh, to go God. down. <laughs> it's Saturday night. And that has always chimed. That's always been a trigger in my head. And when I took the job at HBO, that I posted that video to say, you know, this is where I'm going next, because that was so iconic to me. Yeah. And so when I see things like Netflix's chime or Showtime's chime, those are the things that I think about. Yeah, I think the broadcast channels have all picked up on that. Of course, NBC has the the xylophone, you know, doom, doom, doom. And CW has like a little, I don't know, like a soft rock riff or something. But all the networks have like their little visual thing or not visual audio thing where you hear it. And it's like, okay, this is a, a something from that network or from that property. It's a really interesting kind of a, a branding thing. I, I find that really interesting. Mm-hmm. So you're currently in Seattle, but mm-hmm. you grew up in Columbus, Ohio, right? Yes. Columbus, oh. Ohio, home of the Buckeyes. Home of the Buckeyes. What was it like there? I I loved Columbus, Ohio. I have so many memories of what it was like growing up in Columbus. It seems kind of crazy to say that it was a small town, but at the time, like to me, like it was my it was my world. And so 
I don't know. I just, I just remember, I don't have a good answer for that question, actually. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When you think about that time, like, was, was design and art, was that like a big part of your world growing up? Yes, absolutely. That was one, I, I used to draw a lot. I think I always knew I wanted to be in some kind of a creative role, even if I didn't know what that meant. I was always drawing. I was never really big into sports as a kid, which is crazy to people who know me now. But the thing that I used to always get excited for was the Super Bowl, not because of the game, but because of the commercials. And so mm-hmm. like, I have distinct memories of being excited to watch the Bud Bowl and, and Spuds McKenzie and, <laughs> and, and things like that. I was always drawn to that those type of experiences. I have, remember having a drawing of like the old camel mascot, which okay. the camel cigarettes met Joe camel and which probably isn't great for, you know, an eight year old to be drawing, but I always knew I wanted to do this and something in that realm. And I remember doing a, a shadowing experience. I followed, I, I shadowed a photographer for the day and I went to his studio and he had, this, I'll never forget, he had this beautiful brick building and he had this huge studio and he was showing me how to work the cameras and such. And I was, and the thing that stuck, stood out to me was he was wearing jeans to work. And <laughs> so that's why I wanted to do that because he wore jeans to work because I saw my mom going off to work in her suit and sneakers. And I saw my dad going off to work in his business attire. And I was, I just, I was like, I know I, I that guy is wearing jeans. I, whatever he's doing, I want to do that. And so <laughs> I've always, always in this space. So, so you knew from an early age, this is like exactly what you wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I didn't know how it was going to manifest itself. I was really into comic books as a kid. I tried to draw. I'm a terrible drawer, but I tried I tried to draw. I was really into lettering, so I was trying to do something with that. Uh, it wasn't really until, I think, high school when we moved to Minnesota that I even learned what graphic design was and started looking at that as a potential opportunity. Was your family like supportive of you going in that route? Oh, yeah. My, my parents have always been very supportive of this of me doing this. I don't know if they always understood <laughs> what it meant, but I remember them putting me into art programs when I was young, like the summer school art programs at, at, at I think it's CCAD, the Columbus College of Art and Design. I did a couple summer camp things there. So they you know, they've always been really supportive of this. Nice. So you're in high school in Minnesota, right? Yeah. You graduated high school. And then after that, you went back to Ohio University of Dayton, right? Yes. Tell me about that. I wanted to go to Ohio State, and I didn't get into Ohio State. And so mm-hmm. I thought, well, I've got family in Ohio. University of Dayton is the next best thing. They had a really good design program. I remember going out to visit the campus and being really impressed for being a Catholic school. One, the number of black faces I saw around. It wasn't a ton, but it was more than I was expecting. And the design program was really, really, the art and design program was really, really good. So yeah, I, I took a year off after high school because I wanted to work. I wanted to save up some money for school. So I actually took a year off before I went off to University of Dayton. Okay. And I started there. And honestly, when I look at it now, I was there for a year. I probably enjoyed the partying a little too much. Uh, I enjoyed the social aspects of college more than I enjoyed the class aspects of college. But in hindsight, I think I, I was making decisions about my future from a very, very 
poor perspective. It was, hey, you're supposed to, this is your, you know, you're 18 years old, you're supposed to go to college, go to college, this is what you're going to do. And I knew I wanted to do something in design, but the idea of alternative paths for that never crossed my mind. And the, the idea of, you know, I could have moved down to Atlanta early and, and done something. It just, I wasn't coming at it from the right space. And I don't think, honestly, it was the right time for me to go because I just, I went into it and I, it kind of blew the opportunity. I didn't take advantage of the opportunity that was in front of me. So when the, it was kind of a sobering experience when I got the, you know, at the end of the year, I looked at this next looming bill for the next year and I was like, I can't afford this. I can't afford to take out another loan for this. So I, I need to go figure out something else. So I moved to Atlanta, moved in with my parents, which started a nice long period of moving in and out of my parents' place <laughs> for a number of years until until I figured things out. It's so interesting that that first year of college because, and I don't know if it's like this at other colleges, but it feels to me, and maybe it's just a combination of freedom from the parents and being in a new environment, but it feels like the college throws everything they can at you to make you not go to class and to make you not want to study or do anything. It's like, there's so many extracurricular activities. There's football games, there's parties. When I went to Morehouse, they had charter buses. The clubs would send charter buses, pick (laughs) us up, take us to the club and drop us right back off on campus. It's like, you don't even have to worry about transportation to get to and from places. So I don't know, maybe it's different at other colleges. I don't know, but it felt like, I mean, I had that experience sort of freshman year. And I, I think I've talked about this on the show where my freshman year at Morehouse was rough. Yeah. <laughs> it, was, it was rough. I mean, I got kicked out of my dorm. I had to get into another dorm. And it wasn't even so much because of the, like, the partying and everything, but it's just like there's so many other things to do that have nothing to do with class. And you have complete, total, unfettered freedom to do those things. And there's nobody to, like, snap you back in line or tell you this is what you need to do. You have to sort of go in with this level of self-discipline. And I don't think a lot of 18 year olds have, you know, it, it's kind of crazy that we, we sit 18 year olds down and say, okay, here, you need to decide what you're going to do for the rest of your life. Yeah. Over these next four years, you're going to take out hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans to do this. And we're going to give you zero support. You're an adult now, <laughs> figure it out. And it, it's, it's crazy to me that we, that we do that. Yeah. And because that was, that was how it felt. It was like, I'm an adult. I can do whatever I want to now. And, and the switch never clicked. That was like, oh, I also have to do these things because it's going to move me forward and to the path that I think that I want. But again, yeah. at 18 years, what I wanted at 18 years old is dramatically different than, you know, what I wanted in my mid twenties or even mid thirties. Right. And I mean, Oh my God. Yeah, that's so true. I racked up credit card debt. I just mm-hmm. did like dumb shit. I had a job. I did get a job. You remember college club? Do you remember that, that sounds website? It, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It was a precursor kind of to to Facebook, but Mm -hmm. College Club had this interface where they gave you a number and you could call the number and it would read your email back to you. And they had all these little like campus sites. So like whatever school you went to, there was a site just for your school and you could meet people at your school or at other schools. I ended up working there as a like a campus, like a representative, like a campus representative for Morehouse for College Club. Mm -hmm. And then... I was hustling on doing that because I was getting paid to do that. And the way that they had the pay structure set up was you got paid 
Like, and this is wild now for people that are listening that are hearing this. We got paid three dollars per picture and like five dollars per new account. So wow. every time you took pictures, like you went around and you took pictures of campus life and uploaded them, I'm just counting in my head three, six, nine, twelve, boom, 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 boom. Mm-hmm. Same with accounts, five, ten, fifteen, twenty. And so I was in the computer science department at the time because I had majored in computer science, computer engineering that first semester. And I remember talking with a friend of mine, actually the same friend I told you about who teaches at Ohio State. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, we, <laughs> we, we put together this uh, like macro program that we could basically just take pictures and like we would upload all the pictures to a folder and then run the macro and the macro would like upload everything and it would give us a total of what it would be at the end. Because the digital cameras we had, this is 1999, the digital cameras we had took a like one of those hard floppy disks. Mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> wow! <laughs> it was a Sony Mavica, and oh. I remember like having like a box of disks in my backpack, just yes. like slotting them out, taking pictures and stuff. And the macro we made another macro that would just make random accounts. So we were getting money like hand over fist, like every month. Four thousand dollars. What what am I gonna do at eighteen with, with four thousand? You think that I'm thinking about going to class and I'm making mm-hmm. this much money now? Mm-hmm. Like I almost flunked out the first year. I was, yeah. I was so I was so just not even focused on it. The other reason also was because I wanted to do web design and my advisor was like, if you you want to do that, you need to change your major because you're not gonna be able to do that here. He's like, the web is a fad. There's no way that people are gonna be doing stuff on the internet. In five years, it's like, what are, what are we going to do on the internet? Play solitaire? <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, so yes. Yeah, Boy, so after, that person was right. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> so after dating you, uh, you said you moved to Atlanta. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was living with my parents. I got a job, bounced around, was working retail, just really trying to figure out what my next step was. I knew I still kind of wanted to go back to school, but I didn't know what that path was. And so I, I think it was, I did that for a couple of years and I think it was, you know, 99, 2000-ish that I found the Art Institute of Atlanta. Oh, wow. Uh, I went and checked it out. I, you know, at the time, you know, with a couple of years of post-Dayton, I said, well, let me make sure that this is the right place for me and did my due diligence. And it seemed okay. And then I got in there and realized what we all know now about Art Institute of Atlanta, you know, the Art Institutes, but. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I remember, and I only remember this because this is what kind of kickstarted my career was. I had a class and the teacher, they made a big show about the teachers are working professionals. And so they're going to their jobs and then they're going to come teach these classes in the evening while well, the professor was never there. <laughs> and so this woman basically wound up teaching us it was a photoshop class and so this woman who was a classmate there basically started teaching the class and she told me about this company that she worked for that was a small it was a publishing company they made apartment magazines she asked you know if i was interested in a production job and i said well you you know sure like i'm i need a job while i'm going to school so this this is perfect and so i started working for this the, the apartment guide which is such a quaint idea now, but they were little books that you would pick up at the grocery store and you would have listings of apartments and you would pick out your apartment. And that was how you found how you, where you wanted to live. And I started out as a production artist there and I realized 
by this point, I realized I was giving our, the art institutes a lot of money. I wasn't getting anything out of it. I think there was one class I only showed up for three times and still got an A. So I said, you know, I'm not, <laughs> this is not, you know, this is not the right thing. So I left there and, and that was kind of the start of my career. I started out as a production artist pumping out those books and did that for three years. I was starting to think about what the next step was going to be. I, I started having conversations with what they called art directors. What was the next step after being this production artist? What could I do next? And, you know, they said some of the cities were large enough to justify having their own in-house artists who basically ran the art, the quote unquote art department for these apartment guides. And originally he was going to send me to Vegas. And thank God he didn't. That sounded amazing at the time. Thank God he <laughs> did not wind up there. But he said, we need an artist for uh, for the Puget Sound book. And I had no idea what that was. I, said, I don't know what Puget Sound is. And mm-hmm. he said, it's, it's Seattle. I said, I don't, I don't know what Seattle is. <laughs> so, <laughs> and so in 2003, I moved out here to Seattle. I knew exactly one person. I knew a girl I went to. A girl I went to college with was living here, so she was the only person I knew here. And I moved here in 2003 and did that for a couple more years. Realized fairly quickly that print work in the Seattle market was drying up quickly. And I was trying to make this move into advertising because that was what I knew I'd always wanted to do. And I talked to a friend slash colleague at it at an ad agency here, and I took him my sad, pathetic little apartment guide book and you know pro- portfolio and said, you know, what could I do here? And he looked at my book and he said, he said, did you do these ads on a Mac or a PC? Hmm. And I said, well, I did them on a Mac. And he said, so it's not completely worthless. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I can wow. work with you here. He was like, you need to get out of that job because this job is not going to get you where you need to be. And I think it was shortly after that that I gave I gave like two weeks notice and or two months notice. And I said, I'm going to go find something else. I'm going to go find something that is closer to what I want to be doing. Mm-hmm. And that took a while. You know, I did some exhibit design. I worked for a company that did all of Microsoft's conferences and trade shows. So it was, you know, their CES exhibits and their E3 things and things like that. I freelanced for a while doing a lot of logo branding work, websites, things like that. And then it was about 2010 where I kind of saw the horizon of what was coming down and it was the iPad. And I was so intrigued by the potential of that device and that screen and what it meant and what it could be that I immediately went out and bought one and changed my focus and said, this is what I want to do and started focusing on that and, and made that pivot. So I want to go back cause you just covered a lot of time. The early part where you're talking about you were you're working at apartment guide. I'm just curious, like, what was that time like for you? That's three years. That's a long time to be at a place for design, especially back then, because there wasn't really a lot of variance in what you could do for digital design like there is now. You can be product or UX or what, you know, interaction, what have you like. What was your mind frame like during that time when you're working at the apartment guide, just doing these print ads? Honestly, it was a time where I said, you know, this is the time that I'm going to put my head down and, and grind. Like it wasn't, it wasn't design work. It was, it was very purely print production work. So mm-hmm. it was 
throw headphones on and grind through these ads and grind through making these, you know, copy changes or whatever they were. And so I knew that that was a means to an end. I knew I didn't want to do that forever. Yeah. But I knew that I needed to pay my dues and I didn't know what I didn't know because I, again, I was coming from, you know, basically two years of college separated by five years. So I knew I needed to learn a lot. And so I would work on, I'd work on stuff during the day and then I would go home and I would read books on design and I'd, I'd mock up my own ads and I would do as much learning as I could on my own, even with the limited resources that were on online at the time, just trying to read and soak up and inhale as much as I could so that the next time I was doing these print production things, I could do it a little bit more efficiently so that I could get through more things so I could go home and do more of this other thing. And so when the opportunity to, to, and I started having conversations with the people who would be my bosses about becoming an art director for a book about a year before it actually happened. I went to them and said, what do I need to do to get here? Because this is what I want my next step to be. And so doing that was a big help because they basically provided the roadmap for me. And when it, when the time came to interview for those roles, I had done everything they were looking for anyway. And I had shown that I was capable of doing all that work anyway. So it really became more of a, not formality, but I'd shown I was able to do the work. So getting the job was easy. So it sounds like that was your education. Mm-hmm. Like that was your college, basically. Basically, yeah. That's kind of how I started referring to it, yeah. My career started in earnest in 2003. And it was such a dramatic shift from what I was working on because I went from working in a production office pumping out things to having to support salespeople and having to work with people who had completely different priorities that I did and having to work with people who thought about things completely different than I did. And so Mm -hmm. it was a very strong fundamental shift in how I thought about design work. Cause I was so used to just like, Hey, I can design all these things in a vacuum and it doesn't really matter what happens outside of this. And I I moved here and it became very much, no, these things have a purpose. We need to, there are numbers that I need to hit. So I need to make sure that this content matches that. What was Seattle like during that time? Like during those early two thousands? You know, it was crazy. I knew Seattle because of Microsoft and Amazon and Starbucks and Nintendo I lived, my first apartment was right across from the Microsoft campus. And it was my, like driving on to the Microsoft campus was, I remember being shocked that it was literally a campus. Like I just, I guess for some reason in my head, I always thought of a building, a big tall building downtown that had Microsoft on the top. And that was Microsoft. And to see how much, how ingrained the community it was, was kind of mind blowing for me. But I never really thought about Seattle as a tech city. It was just a city that had some tech companies in it. I stayed largely away from it because I didn't want to work in tech. I wanted to work in advertising and I wanted to work in, in design. So I stayed away from all of that. I remember turning down interviews at Amazon. So it's like, I don't want to work. I don't want to do that. I don't want to work for Amazon. And so it, it's crazy to me when people say that Seattle's always been a tech town because it didn't really feel like a tech town to me really until about. 2010 2011 when it was like okay now facebook is here and google is here and and companies are starting to move here to take advantage of all the engineering talent and so all of a sudden you would look around and uber's over here and lyft's over there and facebook's down the street and google's taken up like a several city blocks over in kirkland and and you looked up one day and you're like oh wait a minute yeah this is now a major tech city 
in 2003, it felt much smaller. It felt much more of a community. I loved my early days here. I felt like I knew a lot of people. I made a conscious effort to get out and meet people because I didn't know anybody here. And so I had, you know, I had distinct friend groups of like my design friends and my friends that I would go out to nightclubs with and my friends that I would play sports with. It just felt a lot smaller than it does now. Mm, interesting. I knew about Seattle from the real world. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I remember that because that was the year we first got cable. And I had heard about this stuff because I we had magazines. Like I was, I grew up in the deep south in Selman, so anything that I knew about pop culture and everything came in the mail. We had magazines, and that was pretty much it. And I think we we first got cable in like ninety seven, ninety eight, and I think Real World Seattle, well, Seattle, yep. so yeah, Seattle, yeah, that was the one with uh, where Steven slapped Irene. Yeah, yeah, that was the first one I saw. And then I went to Seattle. It was two thousand two. I had got an opportunity to do an internship interview at Microsoft. Actually, that's the only time I've been in Seattle, now that I think about it. Uh, it was my first time there, and I was like, I got to see the real world house. Never found it, but I got to see, you know, Pike Place Markets, all the Space Needle. And I saw the Microsoft campus, like, that you were talking about. And I just remember going there and seeing all the segues and thinking this is, like, the future. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like, oh my God, people are people are driving around Ooh. on Segways. I've only read about Segways. What? Um, didn't get the internship, but it was a really interesting experience. I've been trying to get back there ever since. So hopefully, you know, twenty twenty can can make Come that happen. Summer. But yeah, Come in the summer. This Come is my yeah, this is the part that I think people who know me would be remiss if I didn't say it. Don't come in the winter. The weather here is terrible. I hate it. <laughs> come <laughs> in the, the summers are beautiful, but it's about to start raining for the next eight months. So okay. just such so a fair warning. <laughs> so now that Seattle is kind of, I guess, changing into a tech city, sort of like you're you're saying, how has the culture changed? Have you felt that shift as well? Yeah. I remember a couple of years ago, I remember reading an article about things that were happening with long-term residents in Silicon Valley and fighting against the their long-term residents of San Francisco fighting against Silicon Valley and like stopping buses in the street and doing all these things to disrupt what was happening to their city. I remember, I think it was three or four years ago, the same thing happened here in Seattle and Microsoft was using, I think is using street bus stops or something like that. And somebody had literally held up a sign and was like stopping one of those Microsoft transit buses. Cause you were like, you're destroying this neighborhood. And so I've felt that I've noticed that I remember, I mean, my starting day, my first day at Amazon, I think I was in a room with 300 other people and that was their day one along with me. And I think it was 300 people and they told me it was the smallest one they had had this month. Mm. So Amazon is bringing in a ton of people. Google brings in a ton of people. Facebook obviously is bringing in, I think Facebook's second biggest campus is here. So yeah, it definitely has had an impact on the community both in terms of obvious things like the cost of living and housing, but also in the way I feel like when I moved here, there was care for, this is going to sound really out there, but it's, it felt like there was care for other people. Like, you know, you didn't hear a lot of talking about people as they, or at least I never did, you know, mm -hmm. and I'm sure there was nimbyism floating around back then, but it's been very apparent here. We need to do something about the homeless problem, but we don't want it over here. 
do it somewhere else. And I think that's come from a lot of that, a lot of people coming from Silicon Valley up here, people coming in from other places, because this is a more affordable place to be compared to some places in California. And so there's been, and the weather here is pretty moderate most of the time. And so it's become a destination. And so it's become a destination, but there's nowhere for anybody to live. So there's, and there's people who've been living here for 30, 40 years that are fighting against all that. So yeah, I definitely feel it. I've definitely noticed it. Yeah. I've heard that from, there's this, this video channel, on YouTube that I really like that's based out of Seattle called cut. And they often will show, Hmm. well, they, they feature Seattle people because they're in Seattle, but every now and then they'll have something which sort of talks about the city or they're interviewing people in the city. And they'll talk about how things have really changed with sort of the encroaching of tech upon, I guess the Seattle culture and and everything. Mm -hmm. So that's really interesting because I think about that with Atlanta also, I mean, Atlanta is a city that has been changing a lot over these past 10 years, mostly because of entertainment. There's mm-hmm. a lot of film and TV that is, is done here. And that has certainly not just, I think, changed the culture, but also changed the cost of living, et cetera. It's not as expensive as a New York or a San Francisco or, or LA, uh, but it's affordable enough where people are starting to move here. And like that influx of people is changing the culture. I, I'll admit, I'm not super involved in the local sort of design scene for many reasons but Mm -hmm. i i'm wondering like now that you're at the position where you're at especially having done so much in the field do you feel like there's really like a design community there in seattle or is it just all tech i don't I'll say that with an asterisk. I've become an old man living in the suburbs. So I, I go to work and I come <laughs> home and I play with my dog and I watch TV. So like, I, so I'm sure there are things happening that I just don't know about. But I know when I was younger, I struggled a lot with going to trying to go to design events here, not feeling very welcomed getting frustrated and leaving. Mm -hmm. And, and so that happens enough times and you give it another shot and it happens again and you give it another shot and it happens again. Eventually you just stop going. And so part of that's on me. Part of that's on, on the design community here. I feel like the things that I go to now have been more tech focused, but I think that's also because my career has been more tech focused. Mm-hmm. I haven't been to a design focused event in a while here. And I feel like when I go to other cities, when I was in, I was in Minneapolis for the IGA conference and I went to a bunch of different design events and felt immediately welcomed and, and it was a great time. And then I tried to come back to that same one here after that event. It just wasn't very welcoming. So I've just stopped trying to go and, mm-hmm. I do acknowledge that I need to be better about that because I also grumble about the fact that I don't have any peers that I can talk to. So I remember that from when we met in Atlanta, you were sort of telling me that. Do you think part of that is just like the infamous Seattle freeze? You're going to get me in trouble, Maurice. (laughs) 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 Very strong feelings about that. I think the Seattle freeze, I've actually come around on a little bit on that idea a little bit. I think people here are, you have to work to make relationships here. I don't think that's ever been in question. The way I always describe it, it's a hard nut with a super soft center. And so you're going to take a lot of work to get through that nut. But once you get into the middle of it, it's this very welcoming, great place. But Mm -hmm. you got to do the work. And if you come from somewhere like in Atlanta or Minneapolis or 
places where it's very outwardly like you walk past people on the street and then the next thing you know you're over at their house for sunday dinner that can be a hard transition to make yeah i fight against it myself i don't want to become that person i don't want to become that person that i've complained about for 15 years now so when people reach out to me i do my best to try and follow up to them because i can't complain about the seattle freeze and then freeze people out myself mm-hmm. so i think my perspective on that is has changed a little bit as, as i've been here for some while i think seattle might get a little bit too much of a bad rep for that it's not easy but it's definitely possible to make to meet people yeah. here i read a recent article from uh I don't know if you know this guy, Timothy Bardlevins. Does that name sound familiar? Yes, I know the the article that you're speaking of. Um, Yeah, Yeah, I have not met him. (laughs) I haven't met him either. He's been on the show before, actually, for an article he wrote back in 2016, also about about AIGA. Back Mm -hmm. then, he was talking about why he quit AIGA, and this recent article that he wrote was about how AIGA upholds white supremacy. Which, I mean, whoo. Right out the gate, (laughs) right out the gate. I was like, oh, shit, let me sit up. Um, Coming out swinging, yeah. yeah. I sat up in my chair when I saw that headline. Like, oh, okay. It's interesting because, like, when you talk about sort of design community, and when I think about design community, AIGA invariably does come to mind because it's the professional organization for designers, and there are chapters in every city. And I know that there certainly are some cities that are more – welcoming and open than others but then it seems like as a whole the organization just sort of has this like issue with diversity and design events tend to be tied to aiga in a way where it's like unless it's coming from that chapter you really kind of don't see it in a way i think atlanta is unique in the respect that we've always had a really strong arts community here it may not specifically be digital design but you can meet people who write paint sculpt what have you. And it's not within the confines of a sanctioned professional organization, that sort of thing. Have you found that kind of community in Seattle? Like just a creative community, not necessarily like digital design. No. And I would love one. I really would. I wish. And if someone's listening to this and knows about one, find me on my website, please tell me, because I would, I would love to have a community to talk about just general design stuff in period. That article in particular, I think, encapsulated a lot of the frustrations that I had with AIGA, both local. Man, I don't want to say nationally because I don't have a lot of experience with nationally, but definitely locally. Like I just I never really ever felt welcome there, except when they were trying to like, here's our diversity event. Mm-hmm. You should come to this. But if I went to just a regular event, I just it never felt right. And I have this group of friends that I've met through actually through the How conference. And they all have a diverse set of backgrounds. There's, you know, photographers, there's artists, there's entrepreneurs. We don't have anything in common other than the fact that we met at the How conference. And those are the relationships that I value the most because we come from such different backgrounds and because we have such different specialties that I value those relationships and we get together once a year and it's great, but I, I would love something like that locally. Well, if any folks in Seattle are listening, make sure to hit up Dwight about that. Absolutely. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> There's a post that I saw that you wrote on LinkedIn a few years ago. It's called Where's My Ari Gold? Ari Gold, for folks who might not know, is from Entourage, right? Yeah. Yeah, from Entourage. I had to get the show right. In this post, you were asking about like where are the agents that are representing designers? You know, you're saying that 
Like musicians have agents, authors, you know, etc. But like when it comes to designers, there's often no no one that's like advocating for the designer for better work and things like this. I really want to get into that because well, one, I'd love to get an agent. <laughs> I would love to have someone that could advocate <laughs> for me about that. But why do you think that exists? Like why do you think there's that dearth of I guess representation for designers like that? Well, let me start by talking about why I wrote that. At the time, I was in that transitional phase when I was looking for trying to get into the digital space. And so I was working with a lot of recruiting agencies, and that's a very frustrating experience. And I remember having a conversation with a friend who is an illustrator. She's written a couple of written a couple of books and she was telling me about her agent and so on and so forth. And then I was having a separate conversation with another recruiter who flat out told me, I don't work for you. I work for the company that's trying to hire you. And that really changed my perspective of how I engaged with recruiters because they don't really have our best interest in mind. They need to fill a role and they're looking for the best person to fill that role. But if I where I wasn't at that time in my life, I'm looking to make the next step in my career and I make looking to make a pivot in my career. I have no one that can advocate for me. And I don't have anybody that can say, this is what this person is like. I've got my website, but I don't have a person that can say, here's why you should consider Dwight for this role. And that was where it came from was I would happily pay somebody to go out and advocate for me and help me negotiate salary, which is something I think all designers struggle with. I think underrepresented designers probably struggle with that as much, if not more, Mm -hmm. because we're always making on the low end of the scale. People aren't checking for us anyway. Right. Yeah. I don't have somebody that can say, hey, on Twitter, hey, come work for me. Here's a bunch of money. Like That doesn't happen. I just read this art as a tangent. I just read this article about the Game of Thrones guys. Oh, um, God. Yeah. How they basically were like, we don't know anything about this. But here, here's a bunch of money to go make this this fantasy show for 10 years. Right. And like, that's not something that happens to designers in particular and underrepresented, uh, underrepresented designers in, in general. So. So that was where that came from, was I'm trying to make this pivot into a space, and I want someone that can advocate for me, not just advocate for me, but help me get to that stage where I can advocate for myself. Mm -hmm. And I had to do all that. I had to, again, find all that information and work through that stuff on my own. And I finally got it all figured out about six months ago when I was having these conversations with Amazon. So... That was where that came from. As to why we don't have them, I don't know. I don't know if it's because there's a lot of people out there who want to be designers and are willing to call themselves designers and will take anything that's given to them salary-wise, job-wise, that there just doesn't seem to be a market for that. I don't know. But I know that there's a lot of talented designers in this world that aren't being found because they aren't in the right circles and they don't know the right people. And that seems to be a hole that could be fixed. Yeah. And you hear all the time, well, if we could find talented black designers, we would have talented black designers. And my response to them is always, well, you're not looking. You can't ask your employees to go find talented employees and be, and be surprised when they all come back looking like the people that you already have working there. Right. And I still wish I had an Ari Gold. 
I ooh, I feel that one in my spirit for real because <laughs> it's one of those things where like I think sort of the general thing that I get from you is like there's a lot of figuring out. And oftentimes as designers, especially digital designers in this field, there's already so many other things we have to figure out in terms of the right tools and the techniques and working with the clients and all this all the other kind of stuff. You want to be able to, I guess, I don't know, offload some of that in a way to an agent. Yeah. I think that would be a good thing. Yeah, and I hope for people that are listening, they don't think that this is coming from some kind of like elitist sort of, you know, kind of state. I think anyone, once you get to a certain level in your career, you don't want to have to keep fighting for the same things that you did when you started out. You mm-hmm. know, like you shouldn't mm-hmm. have to to go to the nail with person with someone on salary or on, you know, a certain benefits or things of that nature. I mean, maybe that's just sort of the nature of whatever market that you happen to be in. If you're in a big city, if you're in a small city, et cetera. I know illustrators often have agents, so they're part of like an agency and that's who tends to get them gigs. I don't know if there needs to be something like that, like for designers or if there's just not, I don't know. I would love to know what that is because I've certainly had folks on the show who are like, uh, what's the best way to put it? They're like creative consultants or something. Like they work with designers almost mm-hmm. in like a collective sort of thing. I'm thinking of one person off the top of my head, Ian Davis, who I think I interviewed him back in 2017, 2018, something like that. And he has like a collective of people that he works with and helps them out with, with kind of gigs and stuff. But it's very much like a closed door sort of thing. You have to know someone who knows someone. I know of different creative collectives, Lacey Jordan, whom I've had on the show. I know she's part of the Beotis Collective, which is made up of like designers and writers and artists. So it's like a a number of different types of creative people. I don't know if maybe that's the model that needs to happen. Like a bunch of us just need to get together and like be super friends. I don't don't know what that would look like. (laughs) The Avengers. Yeah. I mean, no, seriously, because I've had all designers of, all stripes that have been here on the show. And that's a common thing is like, they want to be able to have people that are going to help push them to whatever the next thing is, is in their career. And that's not necessarily like a mentorship kind of thing. It's almost more like, I wouldn't even say coaching or sponsoring, but it is sort of an agent sort of thing, because this is something like you mentioned in the post, you're willing to pay for that. Like mm-hmm. you would pay for someone to help you do this you know, whether that's a percentage of the salary or what have you. And I think headhunters kind of do that, but even that's sort of tricky because the headhunters are not really for you. They're for the company that they work for because they're probably right. getting paid on commission or whatever. Yeah, It's real. Oh man, it's real tricky. I hope there are folks that are out here listening who are in the creative field that might know someone who does this. Like, please reach out to the show or something like that. Cause I feel like that's a real big need, especially, especially for underrepresented designers. Cause what will end up happening is, someone puts out a call on Twitter or something. I feel like that's how I see a lot of these sorts of opportunities sort of like crop up. I'm Mm -hmm. looking for such and such. And then someone starts a Twitter thread with like 50 people in it or something. And I don't know if someone's going to look at all 50 of those people or whatever, but it's, it's like a a sort of a lazy man's way of aggregating that kind of information. But I would, Mm -hmm. man, I would love to have an agent, really just someone that could help out in that respect. Cause yeah, as you get to a certain point, in your career, the recruiters are just, they're just trying to hit quota. They don't really yeah. care whether or not, like I still get recruiters that will contact me for like, oh, we have a six month content writer position. I'm not looking for six month contract gigs. Like get yep. out of here. Like, yep. like, first of all, I'm employed full time. And secondly, I'm not going to do contract work 
at this stage, especially for like, no, no, absolutely not. So I actually put that on, it's on my LinkedIn that says I, I don't, I would rather not be contacted by third party recruiters. And it doesn't, it doesn't stop them. Yeah, it doesn't stop them. <laughs> but, but it's, yeah, it's just that it's, and I respect it. Like, listen, you have your roles to fill. You've got your numbers to hit. I get it. But I'm at a stage in my career where I'd rather I'd rather honestly take that energy that I'm spending trying to find my next job mm-hmm. and put it towards helping someone that is in my position where I was 15 years ago and help them get their career started. Right. And so I, when I spend all this energy trying to find a job. I can't also do that. I get lots of emails through my website all the time asking, how do I do this? How do I get into this career? How do I, and I try and respond to everyone that I can, but that takes time. That takes energy. That takes, you know, that takes your spirit, right? (laughs) Like you've got to get into a mindset to do that. And I love that idea of collective. It's something that I've been thinking about for a while is I think one of the things I've always done in my career, and this has probably been because I've I spent so much time contracting was I'm always looking at what the next step is. You know, I took Amazon for a very specific reason. So once my time in Amazon is done, what's the next thing? And I've, I've been thinking a lot about that idea of having some sort of collective where we can, a bunch of designers can be in one space. It can be a very creative space. You can run your own thing. You can come together, but then also provide opportunities for young designers who don't have those contacts and who don't have blue check marks next to their names and who don't have this huge network of people that are willing to just throw thing, you know, throw opportunities out into the ether. I feel that strongly. Like I want to do that. I want to be in a position where I can do that because I didn't have those opportunities. I didn't have those resources when I was starting my career. Yeah. So just to kind of, I mean, shift gears just a little bit here. I'm I mean, we're talking certainly about the energy that it takes to put all this together. And certainly what I've gained from listening to your story is that you've had to really kind of, and I say this on the show before, but you've had to make the road by walking. Like Mm -hmm. you had to forge your own path through all of this to get to where you are right now. What do you think helps fuel that ambition? I'm always looking forward and I'm always, it sounds kind of, silly to say that I'm never happy, but I'm never happy. I have this vision in my head for myself. And so I keep moving towards that thing. And so I take steps that I think will help me get there. I just started doing some motion design work because it's something that I've always found interesting. I thought it's something that could help me in, in, in somewhere down the line in my career. So, hey, let's start doing some motion design work. And I think that may have come from the fact that I started out, the way I started out my career, I didn't have the tailwinds of coming out out of school with a degree and an internship and all these different resources and references and things like that. I had to do that individually, step by step, and trying to find help where I can. And to be clear, I did not do this by myself. I couldn't have done any of this without lots of support from various different people. But... I think that drive, I'm always thinking about what my next thing is and thinking about, okay, once my time here in Arizona is done, I'm going to be, you know, however old I am and starting to think about the next step in terms of retirement. And so what is the next thing that's going to get me to that point? And what do I want to do? Do I want to be driving through Seattle traffic to go into an office at 55 years old? Like, nah, you know, (laughs) so, so if I don't want to do that, what do I need to be doing now to get to that point? Can you afford to take a break? (laughs) no yeah 
I couldn't take an extended break. I took and and I took a month off between HBO and Amazon, mm-hmm. and got a lot of things done and did a lot of different things. I don't know that I'm built to take a super long sabbatical. I don't know what I would do with my, I think I would go crazy. I know I drive my wife crazy. I don't think I could. And I don't know that I would want to, unless I was doing something very specific, like traveling and going over. I've never been overseas. So that's something I've always wanted to do. And, but no. Yeah. No, the the reason I asked that, and I wasn't like trying to like poke a hole in what you were saying, but I do feel like particularly for underrepresented designers, especially when you get to a certain age, like, late thirties, early forties, it's like, what's next? Do mm-hmm. I still want to be doing this? Like, you know, 10 or 15 years down the line, because if the industry has changed, well, the industry will change. I mean, that's just inevitable. What is my place in it? I mean, much like you, I was self-taught. I was doing all this design stuff as a hobby and like lucked into my first design job in 05. And I've managed to kind of build on skills and opportunities to get where I am now and that's great, but like I don't have a formal education in design. I've got my experiences and my projects, which have helped me out. And it's interesting even to have that. If I try to look at what the next thing is, then it's like, does this transfer? Can I use this? Do I have to go back to school? Like, what is the next thing? And part of me is like, well, maybe I should just like take a break. And <laughs> it's not something yeah. that I think underrepresented designers, when we get to this stage in our career, really even this this age in life. It's not something we can really afford to do. We have to keep going and it sucks. Mm-hmm. It sucks. I would love to have just like three months. I would get so much stuff done. If I could have just three months to not have to worry about what the next thing is I have to do, what the next step is, like what's the next project. Like, uh, yeah. I think if I took, if you said, Dwight, you have to take three months off, I would spend most of that three months figuring out what I was going to do on day 91. And maybe that's coming back to design. Maybe it's not. I was watching, I'm big into these home improvement shows. And so I was watching this show last night and the designer said something that really resonated with me. And I've always tried to put it into words. She said, always say yes until you can afford to say no. Mm -hmm. And I feel like I'm starting to get there. Like, you know, like, over the course of trying to get to this job, I said no to other jobs. And so, but when I think of that holistically about my career, like, is there a point where I don't want to be a designer anymore? Do I want to, she went from a fashion design career to doing home, you know, to, to being an interior designer. Yeah, Is that a shift that I can make? And what does that shift look like? And so I think if I took three months off, I would do basically that, <laughs> figuring out what that 91st day looks like. Always say yes until you can afford to say no. Wow. I might get that tattooed on me somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I'm starting to get to the no part, but even when I give the no's, it's sort of like a maybe. It's like a Mm -hmm. soft no. I haven't gotten to that point yet. I feel like it's hard, especially especially for us, it's hard to say no because you don't know if you're going to have an opportunity to say yes again. Exactly. Exactly. Oh, my God. Yeah. So you feel like I can't say I have to take this thing even though it might not be the best thing for me or for my career, I have to take this because I don't know if there's going to be another opportunity. Yeah. I'll give you a prime example. So like two years ago, I publicly like was like, I'm not doing it. I'm not speaking at conferences anymore. Like the last one I think I spoke at was, it was after how it was, I forget what it was, whatever the conference was, but it was a pain in the ass to like 
deal with the conference organizer and travel and accommodations. And I, was I remember like, you telling me about this. And yeah. I was like, it's not worth it to to go through all of this to do forty five minutes on stage for what? And at this point in time, I also was kind of thinking to myself, like, where's my agent? Who's advocating for me? So I don't have to put up with all this bullshit. <laughs> and I, I was I was on a podcast called Working File with uh, Andy Mangold and Matt McInerney. It was the two of us. It was Cap Watkins, who was VP of Design at BuzzFeed at the time, and myself. And I was like, I'm done. I'm capital D done with speaking at conferences. Have yet to get a conference invite since then. But I don't know if it's because I said no or if they've just stopped coming. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> and, yeah. and, and recently I spoke at, at Bowling Green State University and that was really like my first time giving a, it was a fairly big talk. I'd say it was maybe about 150 people there with students and I've done like little things around town here in Atlanta, but it's like, you know, 50 people at a morning coffee thing or 75 people at a, actually I wasn't even speaking about design. I was speaking about podcasting. Like I wasn't even talking about my design work. And this was, it was like the first time I really got back on a stage and talked about design stuff in like two years. And I was like, this is good. And I told myself then that I would like to speak at more colleges and universities because I just feel like I would rather impart this knowledge on students so they can take it into the future than on working jaded professionals right now who are just here on a professional development budget. Like, yeah, I just feel like it would have a greater, like, I'm thinking of like, what's the impact of what I'm putting out there as opposed to just being on a stage so I can add a credit to my CV or whatever. Like, I don't, I don't care about that, but yeah. Oh man. Always say yes until you can afford to say no. That one hit me deep. Oh man. Yeah. <laughs> I, it, I I had to, I had paused it. I had to think about that for a minute. Cause it was, it, it hit me the same way it hit you. Like, man, like that puts it all in the words. Yeah. And what the bulk of my journey this past year was that was, okay, can I say no to this? Is it the right thing for me? You know, and if I say no, is there going to be another thing? Mm-hmm. And because if I had just taken the, if I had just taken the next thing, I wouldn't be sitting here working at Amazon. I'd be doing something right. All the less the interesting. Coulda, woulda, shouldas. Yeah. If you could like take a look back at your career, if you could put up a, a billboard or or a manifesto or something to say anything to anybody in your field like what would that say what would you want to put out there that you want everyone to know that path isn't a straight line and and just because the or i would say the the path that people think that you need to be on isn't always your path and it's okay to take a left turn even though the gps says to go straight and and see what happens when you do that. You may wind up where you were originally intending to go. You might wind up in a better place. So yeah. feel free to get lost, I guess. Like, yeah. <laughs> you know, feel free to get lost. I like that. Is there like when you look at other like work from your peers or anything like that? Is there any projects that you've seen lately that have really inspired you that made you wish that like you had done that? I don't know if it's lately, but. A couple years ago, there was an ad campaign. I think it was the the Old Spice guy, the guy with the um, the towel around his waist and yeah. was riding a horse with the diamonds or whatever. They did a thing that I thought was that, and this is when I was super into like trying to get in advertising. They had just rolled up this character, and I think the guy went on Twitter in character and just started answering questions in character and making commercials and putting them on YouTube in real time in this character. And I just thought that was so brilliant and such a good use 
of all of those mediums instead of going forth and and building up this big expensive ad campaign that's something that's going to air once for three you know a handful of times for three months we're reacting to people in real time and that has always stuck with me and and i try and think about what are the things that i can leverage that are happening right now whether that's I guess TikTok would be the thing now, but it would have been Snapchat last year. But like, can I be ready to jump on a thing that people aren't even thinking about to communicate things to people? Like if I were to take this into the, take it to the extreme and my role at Kindle, how could I leverage TikTok to get people reading more books? That's always stuck with me. And I, that, that campaign was a while ago, but that's always, that's always stuck with me. So one thing that, I really been trying to focus on for 2020 is like, how can we use sort of the talents that we have to really sort of, I guess, build the future. There's been, you know, campaigns and art installations I've seen about, you know, there are black people in the future. Have you seen these before? It's like a billboard. Mm-hmm. I think there's one in Detroit or maybe it originated in Detroit where a woman has a billboard and it says like, there are black people in the future. Cause when you see mm-hmm. science fiction, we mm-hmm. normally ain't there. It's like, Uhura and and Worf and Jordy <laughs> and uh, whatever the dude was on on Deep Space Nine that was the Vulcan no not mm-hmm. Deep Space Nine yeah yeah Deep Space Nine I'm showing my Star Trek nerdery here but <laughs> when you look at the future like the next five years or so like what kind of work do you want to be doing if I look five years into the future I think I want to be helping the next generation of designers get work and get paid. Like those are the two things that I I see in the future for me as my career gets to wherever it's going to be. I feel like I almost have that responsibility to, to bring people along. And again, cause I didn't, because I didn't have those, those resources and opportunities. I hope I'm in a space where whether it's at Amazon or elsewhere, that I can be in somewhat of a position of power to bring people into the room because I think that I think that's also important. So you'll have the the battle agency? Is that what <laughs> is that what it'll be? Something like that? You know, I I have such a fortunate last name that I really should leverage it more than I do and in a more creative way than I do. But yes, something around the battle agency. <laughs> I need to see how much it is to trademark stuff because I come up with I come up with all kind of stuff for my last name all the time. Some of it I see makes it out into the world. Some of it doesn't. I I need to I need to get on that. Yeah. <laughs> well, just to you know, kind of wrap things up here, Dwight. And uh, this has been a great conversation, by the way. Where can our audience find out more about you and about your work online? You can find my work at dwightbattle.com. You can find me all over various social medias at Dwight the Mayor. And that's Twitter, Instagram, Dribble, LinkedIn. All those links are on my website, too. All right. Sounds good. Well, Dwight Battle, I want to thank you just so much for coming on the show. Like I said, when we met you know, back in, in 2016 and I heard about your story and even hearing it again now, I think it's really important for folks to know, as you said before, that any of the success and things that you see in the design field, in tech, none of it is like unattainable. Like you don't have to follow a specific path of this school to this company to get where you have to go. I think you've been a prime example of someone that has really worked their way up through the ranks, paid your dues, learned as you went, made the road by walking to get to the success that you have today. And I hope that that 
becomes an inspiration for people that are listening. So thank you so much for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. I had a, had a great time. Big, big thanks to Dwight Battle. And of course, thanks to you for listening. You can find out more about Dwight and his work through the links in the show notes at revisionpath.com. And of course, thanks to our sponsors for this episode, Facebook Design and Abstract. Facebook Design is a proud sponsor of Revision Path. To learn more about how the Facebook Design community is designing for human needs at unprecedented scale, please visit facebook.design. This episode is also brought to you by Abstract, design workflow management for modern design teams. Spend less time searching for design files and tracking down feedback, and spend more time focusing on innovation and collaboration. Like Glitch but for designers, Abstract is your team's version control source of truth for design work. With Abstract, you can version sketch design files, present work, request reviews, collect feedback, and give developers direct access to all specs all from one place. Sign your team up for a free 14-day trial today by heading over to www.abstract.com. Revision Path is brought to you by Lunch, a multidisciplinary creative studio in Atlanta, Georgia. Looking for some creative consulting for your next project? Then let's do lunch. Visit us at yepitslunch.com. I'll put a link in the show notes. This episode is created, hosted, and produced by me, Maurice Cherry, with engineering and editing by RJ Basilio. Our intro voiceover is by Music Man Dre, with intro and outro music by the legendary Yellow Speaker. Our transcripts are provided by Glitch. So what did you think of this episode? Hit us up on Twitter or Instagram, or even better, by leaving us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'll even read your review right here on the show. As always, thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.